From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn what's happening with redistricting in Wisconsin and answer some community questions. Then, NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday host, Aisha Roscoe, talks about her new book of essays written by HBCU alumni, including herself. In this book, you have this testimony, and that's what I look at it as. It's really a testimony to the worth and why HBCUs matter. Plus, we'll hear from the director of Skylight Music Theater's production of Xanadu. Because it is an underdog, it speaks to a certain demographic of people that are those underdogs, and it speaks to them using the language of dance, of glamour, of bright colors, of zaniness, and just going for it. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Redistricting is a central focus of politics in Wisconsin, and with good reason. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision to throw out the state's current district maps has led to a mad dash for politicians and map makers to come up with new maps that fit the court's criteria. It's been confusing for a lot of people in our community. We know because you've told us about it in our election survey. Dozens of people have written in with their questions about redistricting, and John Johnson is here to answer a few of them and give some insight on how we got to this point. Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explain more. In deciding that the maps needed to be redrawn, what did the Wisconsin Supreme Court find wrong with the current maps? The court ruled that the current maps are unconstitutional because they contain non-contiguous little pieces, pieces of some of the districts that don't touch the rest of the district. And so for that reason, they enjoined, prohibited their use in any future election. The court said that if they choose a remedial map, if the legislature and governor fail to agree on a new map and the court is forced to choose, they will consider additional fairness criteria when they choose a map beyond simply contiguity. What are the, what what is in that fairness criteria? Right, so some of them are, pretty universally agreed upon. Maps should have equal populations, of course. They should be compact in some sense. They shouldn't be particularly weird shapes. They should try to follow municipal, county, and ward lines. They need to comply with federal civil rights requirements. But then most controversially, the court said that they would explicitly consider partisan fairness when they choose a map. So they're looking for a map that comes close to giving majority control of the legislature to the party that gets the most votes in legislative races. That's how most people are interpreting that partisan impact criteria. A number of maps have been submitted to the court. Right now, who has submitted maps? So the court is considering maps submitted by the Wisconsin legislature, the legislative Republicans, um, the conservative law firm Will, Governor Evers himself, a progressive firm called Law Forward, some maps submitted by a few of the Senate Democrats, and then a group called the Right Petitioners who are working with some prominent national Democratic-aligned law firms. The court is also employing two consultants who uh, I suppose they could use to tweak these maps or even draw their own. We just don't know yet. You've compared uh, these maps to the previous maps in some ways, and using broad strokes, 
How do they generally compare? Well, the map that the legislative Republicans submitted is essentially the old map, just with the contiguity problems cleaned up. But for political purposes, it's essentially the same. The will map is quite a lot different than that in terms of the lines are drawn much differently. And it has a more modest but still quite noticeable Republican tilt. Republicans would probably hold control of the legislature under most scenarios under that map. And then the four other plans submitted by Democrats or, you know, more progressive groups all create a map that would be close to 50-50, that if Democrats won a majority of the vote, they would be pretty likely to win at least 50 seats in the assembly. A lot has happened since these maps have been submitted. Uh, We don't have to go through all of the nitty-gritty details of it, but what's been the most recent updates in this fight? Specifically, it seemed like the legislature was passing what they called Evers maps, even, even though they changed the lines. Yeah, so I think the Republicans in the legislature are upset about two things. One thing they're upset about is you know, losing their partisan edge in so many of these seats. Uh, But the other issue is under many of these maps, two incumbents are drawn into the same district, which you can imagine upsetting if suddenly you're required to run against your colleague if both of you want to continue serving or moving to another district. Uh, All of the plans, except for the one passed by the legislature itself or submitted by the legislature to the court, all of the plans do combine incumbents from both parties. You know, there are Democrat, Democrat districts, Republican, Republican districts, districts with a Republican incumbent and a Democratic incumbent. But the Evers map started to appear, I think, more palatable to Republicans for two reasons. One is that among the four more Democratic-aligned map proposals, the Evers submission has slightly less of a benefit to Democrats. It's probably the most Republican-friendly of the four, although there aren't enormous differences between these plans. But also, the Evers map pairs fewer incumbents than the other plans. And so the Republican legislators, starting with the state Senate, passed a map that tweaked a little bit of the Evers plan. It moved about 1,200 census blocks Um, There are over 200,000 census blocks in the entire state. So it made some small changes primarily to separate a few Republican incumbents who were paired under the Evers map. So they presented this as, well, it's 99% of Evers map and we just tweaked it around the edges. And that did, in fact, pass both chambers of the legislature last week. But Governor Evers swiftly promised a veto of it, saying that he would only sign his maps in these course, are not his maps because they are changed somewhat. Hmm. Now, I'd like to turn to questions from our community. WUWM has been inviting listeners to fill in our election survey to help inform our coverage of the 2024 elections. These are just some of the questions we've received so far. There are a number of people who are confused about which elections will actually be affected by these new district maps. Specifically, we got the question, does redistricting impact statewide elections? So which elections are going to be affected by these new maps? There will be no special elections held. Everyone will still vote on the regularly scheduled period. There was some argument about this, but the court has decided that 
Only the even-numbered Senate districts will be up in 2024 and all of the Assembly districts. So if you found yourself drawn into a new district under this map, then you might be voting for different candidates than you would have been otherwise. Um, but it'll be the same seats up for election. I think another, uh, another way I've heard that question asked is, do we think that having different state legislative maps will affect the outcome of the presidential election? or the Senate election, will there be higher turnout or different turnout than otherwise? And I tend to be skeptical of that. You know, there was a, a survey from 2018, the most recent one I could find, that found that fewer than 20% of people in the country could name their state representative. That's just not a very salient office for most people. But almost everyone has an opinion about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And so I think people's attitudes towards the top of the ticket and their desire to vote for those races at the top of the ticket are going to drive turnout and election results more down ballot than the down ballot enthusiasm will drive participation overall. Now, I think a question that we've gotten as an aside to that is when are we going to know about these maps? And I've avoided this question a bit just because it, it seems like so much is still up in the air do we have a clear timeline or is, is a lot still up in the air? When are we going to know for sure about these maps? So on Friday of this week, we should have a clearer sense of the advice that the Supreme Court is receiving from the consultants they've hired. Their report is due on, on Thursday. Thus far, these documents seem to have usually been published at the end of the day on the day that they are required. But I'm looking forward to reading that. I think that'll hopefully give us some clues as to what the Supreme Court might do next in terms of choosing one of these maps or instructing the consultants to modify them in some way. I think the possibility remains, we have to say, that the legislature could try again to pass a map that the governor might sign. In my understanding of what the governor said, it seems like he might sign a bill instituting the maps that he submitted to the court into law if the legislature passed them straight up without modifications. And I, I suppose it's possible that if court watchers perceive them as likely to pick a map that's even worse for Republicans, perhaps pairs even more of their incumbents than, than the Evers proposal does, then perhaps the legislature might try again to just actually pass the maps Evers has proposed. But I really have no special insight into the inner workings of the Wisconsin legislature. And then that deadline everyone keeps coming back to is the middle of March when the Wisconsin Election Commission says they need to be absolutely sure what the boundaries will be so that they can administer the fall partisan primary appropriately. Now, another question we've been getting uh, in a variety of different ways from a lot of people is why doesn't a nonpartisan committee or software draw electoral maps? Why isn't that what currently happens? There are many models of how you might draw maps around the country across the 50 states. I think you can boil them down into one of three categories. The first is that the legislature just has the primary role in drawing the maps, and that's true in 34 states. There are actually a few states where the governor isn't even involved, where the maps are passed by joint resolution and the governor doesn't have to sign it. But most of the time, the governor is required to sign whatever the legislature does. That's how it works here in uh, Wisconsin. Then there are seven states that have politician commissions 
where elected officials serve on these commissions that draw the maps themselves. And usually these are structured in a bipartisan as opposed to a nonpartisan way. So in Missouri, for example, they create commissions to draw the state legislative maps that are equally Democratic and Republican, and 70% of those members are required to agree. So they enforce that a bipartisan map be drawn. But you can imagine, especially when it comes to where incumbents live, that there's actually sort of bipartisan desires around gerrymandering that Democrats and Republicans can come together on. So in an effort to avoid that, nine states have created independent redistricting commissions that usually explicitly ban politicians from serving on those commissions. And they'll define politician different ways, but not people who hold office, not people who are officers for a party, sometimes not the spouses of people who hold office or are party officers. It's an interesting mix of states that have these independent commissions. It includes Alaska, Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Michigan, Missouri, New York, Washington. But I'll tell you something those states all have in common, and this really gets to answering why we don't have this in Wisconsin. Most of those states have an initiative ballot procedure where the citizens of a state can get a constitutional amendment or some other kind of referendum on the ballot without the legislature putting it there. Legislatures are loath to allow an independent commission that takes the power to draw maps away from them. That's true of Democrats and Republicans alike. If we had a third party, it would be true of them too. Nobody likes to give up power. But when citizens are able to bypass the legislature and put a proposal for an independent commission on the ballot directly, that often winds up being very popular with the electorate overall, and we see those things being passed into law. Well, I'm excited to see what the next steps in this process are. Uh, We will be speaking again next week, so I look forward to chatting once again. John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. If you have a question about redistricting in Wisconsin, let us know by filling out our election survey at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM as we start our coverage on local elections. Johnson will join us again next week, and you can head to wuwm.com to find more of our coverage on this issue. The childcare industry in Wisconsin is struggling. Late last year, Governor Tony Evers appointed $170 million in funding for the state's Child Care Counts program but the Office of Children's Mental Health says local childcare is nearing a state of crisis. Emily Amundsen is the secretary at the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families. She speaks with WUWM's Eddie Morales about the future of childcare and how its current state is impacting families and child educators. This month, the Office of Children's Mental Health, they held their annual briefing and they shared data about childcare saying that Wisconsin is one of the hardest hit states and is at risk of a third of childcare centers closing, half of the early care educator workforce leaving the field, um, 90% of centers raising fees. So how would you describe the state of childcare in the Milwaukee area? 
absolutely, I think every state in the country is grappling um, with the reality that without state investment, we're all grappling with a fiscal cliff from, you know, coming out of the pandemic. There was a lot of funding available to childcare, and we certainly directed so much, almost $900 million in funding to childcare centers. And what that funding did during the pandemic was it allowed folks in childcare centers to raise wages for childcare workforce um, while still keeping rates relatively reasonable for families. And so as the cost, as all of the costs started going up, you know, out, out in local economies, we were able to kind of keep the landscape steady. With the sort of lapse of that federal funding and the um, and the fiscal cliff coming, you know, we've had to reduce the the amount of money that is going out to child care centers. And just recently, uh, we got another uh, sort of hail mary um, from the from Governor Evers injecting another 170 million dollars into the child care counts system, and that means that child care providers for the next year or so, a little longer, will continue to receive a smaller amount of money to supplement tuition and uh, and other funding sources that they might have, but it's not as much as they were getting before. And they're also grappling with the end of that program because uh, legislators haven't been able to agree on a way to continue that funding. And so like, to kind of put that all into the current state, we're in an incredibly dicey situation. You know, in some places, and actually in the Milwaukee area, we have seen a modest increase in the number of centers that are opening, in the number of slots uh, for childcare that we do have, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's affordable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that childcare providers can find uh, qualified workforce in order to keep their programs fully staffed, which means, you know, full at full capacity. And so I'm incredibly worried about the future of childcare in the state of Wisconsin. When we don't have enough childcare, it means it gets more expensive for folks uh, for folks that can find it. It means there's usually not enough workforce to be able to cover the, the need that we have. And it means that folks have to start making decisions that they don't want to make, dropping out of the workforce or potentially putting their their child in a place that they don't feel particularly good about. And and those are the worst, absolutely the worst decisions that you have to make as a parent. How does that affect the mental health, if you could speak to this, of child care workers and families? You know, when there isn't enough, when we feel under-resourced, when we feel like we're just running from one place to another, uh, it's an incredibly <laughs> discombobulating feeling, right? And um, I talk to a lot of parents who say the stress and the emotional toll that it takes on me as a parent to try to figure this out, to, to be told at center after center after center that it's either too expensive, I can't afford it, or uh, or there isn't a place for me. You know, there's an 18-month waiting list to get into a lot of centers, particularly for infants and, and one-year-olds. And um, that takes an incredible toll. What that means inside the center is that you know when there isn't enough workforce, that puts additional pressure on the folks that are staying around. And let's remember that a lot of those folks are on average making about $13 an hour, uh, sometimes without benefits. 
disproportionately, this is a female workforce, they are profoundly educated. They have more education behind them than uh, most other professions. And yet that rate of pay has most of them. Um, we have data that shows that over 50% of folks in the childcare workforce have considered leaving the field uh, and looking for other jobs that are probably easier and may provide benefits. And so that's the critical issue that we're dealing with inside centers is if we can't find a reason to make folks want to do this work, we're going to have a, a true collapse of the workforce within childcare. Um, the mental health toll is significant. We've heard this over and over again. Uh, and then our center directors, because of that workforce shortage, folks that are supposed to be sort of setting the tone, finding the best curriculum, raising the quality of centers, they're often having to sub in for classrooms that don't have enough educators to keep the classroom open. And so it just creates a really chaotic environment that absolutely translates to kids. And I think that um, what we're seeing with young kids is that their mental health needs are presenting ever earlier, right? Like coming out of the pandemic, our three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds have really big feelings. They have really big behaviors. And we heard about how early childhood centers are helping to give kids skills and tools to help deal with those big feelings and those big behaviors so that by the time they get to kindergarten, they're ready for school. And I think that's the biggest um, piece of this puzzle that I think is a danger for our kids and their mental health. Um, and just going back to the funding that you mentioned, how can that be used to help with the current state of child care? And what can centers do to qualify for that? And what families can do to help kind of navigate through this situation? So in terms of the funding, so the funding that we're able to provide right now because of Governor Evers' investment in child care counts, this is actually the critical window to get into that program. And it's a really important time period. So most, if you are DCF licensed and you're in good standing, you can apply for this funding. And once you are in, you get a monthly check. It takes you about five minutes to update your information and you're able to get that check to help supplement wages, to help supplement curriculum materials and to help keep tuition payments low for families. And so that's really important. And I would say if you are a center that is DCF licensed and you're not in child care counts, you've got to get in um, because it's really uh, it's really funding for you. It's funding for this time that we're in. Most centers, I will tell you, Eddie, are in this program. Like they, we have been screaming from the rooftops about this program. It's been a couple of years uh, that we've been running it. And so uh, we have really good uptake, like over 4,000 centers in the state are, are um, getting this assistance right now. In terms of parents, like I think it's really important for parents to know that this funding from, from the federal government has been what is keeping rates artificially lower than they would be otherwise. And already we know that rates um, for childcare are probably the most expensive thing that working parents pay for. By federal standards, they say that affordable childcare should only be 7% of your monthly income. We know in the greater Milwaukee area that most folks are paying upwards of 35% of their monthly income to childcare costs if you're a family of four. And that's unacceptable. And so like the funding that we do have is keeping rates at an artificially low place and yet that low place is so much more than parents can already afford. 
And so like that right there is the issue. I think parents need to help the greater community understand why a state investment in childcare is so important. Most folks, when they have kids, they're at uh, the beginnings of their careers, they're struggling to make either a mortgage payment or an apartment rent, uh, work in their budget alongside of having this like incredibly expensive cost that is oftentimes more expensive than college tuition. And they're doing it at the beginning of, you know, of their parenting experience. And so like folks need to just talk about that. We need to normalize talking about how expensive childcare is and how difficult it is to find childcare. You know, the good news in the greater Milwaukee area is we've seen a bit, it's the only place in the entire state where we've seen a little bit more uh, capacity being built through the pandemic, which is great. We're up about 12% in the greater Milwaukee area in terms of capacity. But if that capacity is just being added for folks that are at the upper income threshold, uh, that's not equitable. We're not building a system that works for everybody. So I really want parents to know that their voice is powerful and that they need to um, they need to talk to their employers about the challenge of childcare, and they should talk to their legislators about the challenge of childcare. I think that this is something that we've seen other states successfully get state funding to help parents and to help childcare providers, but we haven't been able to get there in Wisconsin. I think we can get there if we work together. Well, thanks so much, Emily. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks so much for covering this. Emily Mudson is the secretary at the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families. She spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales. Coming up later in the show, we'll learn how a production of Xanadu uses its imperfections to embrace all the campy roller disco musical has to offer. But first, NPR's Weekend Edition host Aisha Roscoe joins our Eric Von Fellow to talk about her experience at an HBCU. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. HBCUs, or historically black colleges and universities, have a rich history in the United States. Many were founded during a time when black Americans were barred from other higher education institutions. Today, HBCUs continue to provide black students with community, support, and mentorship while they explore career paths. Aisha Roscoe is the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, and the Saturday episodes of Up First. Her new book, HBCU Made, A Celebration of the Black College Experience, is a collection of essays from people like Stacey Abrams, Branford Marsalis, and Oprah Winfrey reflecting on their time at HBCUs. WUWM's Eric Von Fellow, Nadia Kelly, is joined by Roscoe to talk about putting the book together and her HBCU experience at Howard University in Washington, D.C. First of all, what initially sparked this idea of bringing all these people together in your collection to reflect on their HBCU experiences? 
Well, I wish I could say that it was like completely my idea. And I was like, yes, let's bring this together. But actually, Algonquin reached out to me and they said, we want to bring together a collection of essays um, from HBCU graduates because this really hasn't been done before, like with a, a major publishing company. And I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe that it this was something that hadn't really been done. Um, it just seems like it should have been done, you know, a long time ago. And so when they, they brought it to me, I was like, you know, I would love to to take this on, um, even though I have like a million things going on. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, because going to Howard University was such a pivotal point in my life and really life changing and life altering, I was like, I really have to do this uh, because I want to give back to an institution that gave so much to me and because I do believe in the power of HBCUs. And so I'm so glad to be able to bring HBCU made into the world. There's such a wide range of perspectives here in the book. Um, was there any new insight that you gained about the HBCU experience? I know you went to Howard, but in reading and editing these essays, was there any new insight that you gained about the HBCU experience? Oh, absolutely. Like, I learned so much. Like, I, first of all, I was shocked by how much in each of the stories, in different ways, you could see how the HBCU experience is really an experience about community and connection. And you see it in stories like Tendai Kumba, who is a Spelman graduate and a Broadway dancer and singer. Um, who got into a bad accident when she was at Spelman. And it was her Spelman community that really rallied around her and told her, you're going to be able to dance again. And she was, and she is. And and with Roy Wood Jr., um, the way that, you know, he got in trouble when he was at FAMU. And he's talked about this. He talks about this in the essay. But it was FAMU that gave him a second chance. And so you see, like, this community and redemption but I also just learned a lot of stuff about HBCUs that I you know I didn't know about like Spellmen and like all their traditions and how they wake the freshmen up at like you know four in the morning and have them in the chapel singing and all this I didn't know anything about that so <laughs> like all of these traditions um I learned about and like you know as a as a Howard grad you know I, I know about Howard but reading about the other schools I was like oh this is you know I can see why why people love these schools. I can see why people feel so connected. And when you went to Howard, were there any traditions that you really look fondly back on? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love being on the yard, which is like, you know, the main courtyard of the school. Um, you would, especially like on like when springtime came and the sun was out and everybody would be just, you know, on there trying to look good, trying to, you know, trying to impress. You always had the sororities and fraternities. They had their, you know, special trees that were painted for them that, you know, you won't, you don't go around, you know, if you're not one of them, but they would be like strolling. And it, it was just, it was all, it always felt magical. And I write about it in the book how, I, you know, when I did my campus tour, it was on a Friday um, and it was kind of drizzly and rainy. But, you know, I saw like the Delta strolling and I saw all of these beautiful black people on the yard. And that's when I knew, like, I, I got to go there. Howard is is home. You say you write about being at Howard and you also write about working as a staff writer and eventually an editor in chief at their newspaper, The Hilltop. 
And um, you say that you got this piece of advice to put more bass in your voice. Um, could you explain what that means, first of all, to anyone who doesn't know? And how has yeah. this advice helped you since graduating from Howard? Yeah, you know, and actually it was Shawnee Hilton who went on to be a very famous journalist in her own right. Um, but yeah, she she was a departing senior and she said, you know, you should put a little more bass in your voice. And, and, and what she meant by that um, was just that I should kind of stand in my own authority and my own uh, power and embrace that and not be so timid uh, and unsure. Um, and really it, it, it was about just being able to know that I am worthy and I have opinions that matter um, and that I'm, I'm in a spot because I deserve it. And just kind of walking in that. And so I, and I say in the the introduction, I didn't learn it right then. I couldn't really take it in right at that moment, right? But over time, I think I've been able to hear that and receive that, the, those seeds that were planted. They've been watered and I've been able to grow um, into uh, the person that you see now. And to and into a person that can stand in my power and in my authority. When you went to Howard, did that help you become connected to other Black journalists or Black writers that came before you? And if so, how? Yeah, you know, I think that it definitely helped me in the sense that, like, first of all, the, Howard has such a rich collection of you know journalists who who have come through Howard, and and so those connections helped me. But really, it was like. The professors, like I, you know, I had a, a professor and mentor, um, Yannick Rice-Lamb, who was like the editor-in-chief of Heart and Soul, that magazine. I'm sure a lot of people remember it from back in the day. But like she, I learned so much from her. Philip Dixon was over the print journalism department at that time. And he was like a legendary journalist from Philadelphia who worked at, I believe, the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Washington Post. Um, and so like, you know, I learned so much from them um, and they poured so much into me. Um, and really, and I will always say this, um, Howard is the reason why I got my first job in journalism at Reuters. It was a Howard business reporting class. They partnered with Reuters. Um, and it was through that class that Reuters even, you know, learned about me. I would have never gotten an internship at Reuters without that class because I'd only had one prior internship. Everyone else had, you know, interned at every place under the sun. <laughs> so it, it's really Howard that uh, put me on the path that I am now. What do you hope that people, whether it's someone who's looking to go to an HBCU or someone who um, maybe doesn't even know that much about black colleges in general, like what do you hope that people take out of reading your book? What, what I feel like people can get from this book, you know, which has, you know, stories from Stacey Abrams, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Roy Wood Jr., as I said, um, Branford Marsalis and others in their own words. I think what you get is the, the richness of the HBCU experience. So even if you've gone to an HBCU, there's things that you can learn. If you don't know much about HBCUs, it, you can learn about 
what this experience is all about. What is, what's the hype all about? This is what it's about. This is why Beyonce was doing homecoming. Um, and then also I think, you know, I always look at it like this is like if you went to a homecoming on some campus and you pulled five or six people to the side from different generations and said, why are you here? Why does this matter? These are the type of stories you would hear. And so not everybody's going to be able to get to do those interviews or do the campus tour. But in this book, you have this testimony. And that's what I look at it as. It's really a testimony to the worth and why HBCUs matter. Aisha Roscoe is the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday and the author and editor of the new book, HBCU Made. She spoke with WUWM's Eric Von fellow, Nadia Kelly. You can find more about Roscoe's book at WUWM.com. We'll take one more break and then get your roller skates ready because we're rolling into Xanadu. Keep listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Xanadu was a musical film released in 1980 starring Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly of all pairings. This campy adventure, to summarize it quickly, is about Greek goddesses and roller discos. It explores themes about chasing your dreams despite the limitations you're facing. Xanadu was also turned into a musical for the stage, making sure to keep the glitter, the humor, and leaning fully into its imperfections. It's now playing at Milwaukee's Skylight Music Theater, and its director joins me now to share more. Doug Clemens, welcome to Lake Effect. Good to speak with you today. Audrey Nowakowski, it is a divine pleasure to be here today and to see you. Oh, it's great to see you. So we're here to talk about Xanadu. And all I know about Xanadu is that it was an 80s roller disco film with Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly, legend of all people. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. So to start, can you please share with us what Xanadu is all about? Yes, uh, Xanadu was a legendary 1980s film. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, Gene Kelly, uh, choreography by Kenny Ortega. Um, it was never meant to be a smash hit of what it was. It was meant to be just another fluff piece because roller disco movies were becoming the hot thing. Um, and then Olivia Newton-John randomly found the script and said, oh, I want to, I want to do this movie. That's not Australian. I do a horrible Australian accent. Um, and then they were trying to think of like who to, who to play the role of Danny who would be like a really good dancer and a charming person on stage. And of course, Gene Kelly is, is the obvious choice. And magically, he ended up signing on to it because he loved Kenny Ortega and believed in him. It was actually a moment when I, be I believe Kenny Ortega was thinking about quitting the business and changing his life path. And then he got to like sort of interview Gene Kelly and convince Gene Kelly to do the film. And Gene Kelly said, well, I'm only going to do it if you choreograph it. So it, it it sort of propelled his career and inspired him to follow his dreams and to trust in his process and trust in his, his unique approach to things. And, you know, as everybody knows, without Kenny Ortega, we wouldn't have Hocus Pocus. We wouldn't have a bunch of legendary movies since the 80s. So really, you know, Xanadu, which was just meant to be this fluff piece, turned out to be kind of a pivotal moment for a lot of people who saw the film, but also who worked on the film. 
its scale is pretty massive. If you just look up one scene in the disco place, it's so many people, so much going on, lots to look at. Um, but when it comes to taking this and translating it to the stage, what drew you to directing Xanadu for the skylight? Well, it's funny because Xanadu in itself, the movie, when it came out, was insanely underrated because it wasn't meant to be as successful as it was. But they just kind of rolled with it and they just sort of rolled with the punches and um, all of this exposure it was now getting. So it's funny because it's not a perfect film. It's not a great film by any means. Um, It's actually borderline terrible. The effects in it um, were outdated even for the, the year that it came out. Xanadu is just hysterical in the fact that it exists, period. But I think something about the film, because it is an underdog, it speaks to a certain demographic of people that are those underdogs, and it speaks to them using the language of dance, of glamour, of bright colors, of zaniness, and just going for it. Whereas even though the execution isn't perfect, the spirit is still there, and that's the key thing that the musical hooked into with writing the script. And it was a brilliant way of tying in not only the people who love the movie, but the actual process of making the movie and what makes the movie so fabulous. So they took all of the glitz and the glam, they set it heavily in the 80s, they loaded it with camp humor, and they kind of um, pared down the plot to streamline it and make it a little more watchable. a little more trackable all the characters have an arc to it um and you know it's it's not without its flaws um but it is fun anytime there is a shortcut they take in the script or they need someone to give forgiveness all of a sudden they they just make a point a to point b is a straight line you know they just go right for it but they don't shy away from it it's part of the humor and it really helps you as a viewer not only enjoy the joke, but be in on the joke. And you're part of the process because we're all underdogs. Like aspirations wouldn't be aspirations if we didn't think they were partially unachievable. And it's that that greatness that makes achieving them so exciting, but also the journey to getting to those things. It, it's why we get out of bed in the morning. And that's to me is what Xanadu is all about. So even though Xanadu is about leaning into the imperfections, having fun with it, as a director, there is the pressure to execute and do it well, of course. So let's talk about the key elements that make Xanadu that you wanted to be sure was in there. I'm thinking costumes, obviously roller skates, which the scale of the movie is way different from the space you have at the skylight uh, and the setting. So can you share some of the elements that you wanted to be sure were translated from the film to the stage? Yeah, um, the biggest element and the most important thing in putting this show together was the cast and the energy, the human energy that this cast brings to the stage. Um, you know, we, we clued into this during auditions. We wanted people that not only danced well, but made me want to dance with them. Um, so we have all body types on the stage, all skill levels, but all of them are joyful, welcoming human beings that really invite you in. They're non-pretentious. So they've been a joy to work with and they're a joy to watch. And I'm so excited for the audience to like really just scoop up the energy that they are serving out in abundance. That's the foundation of the whole show. So once you build on that, we have the costumes. Um, So we need someone who really understood the glamour, the glitz of the 1980s camp that we're going for. So we have uh, Jason Orlenko, who is a legendary local costume designer 
and he is doing rhinestoned mesh over sequins. And you put that under stage lights and everyone is just sparkling. Like the show looks like an Instagram filter. It's amazing. That on top of it all, um, Shane Seinel, who was our um, set designer, had this idea of an old school coliseum, like a, um, a, a Greek coliseum that is kind of breaking free into rock and roll trusts. Um, so we have exposed stage lights, we have glitz and glamour. Their whole thing, um, Shane's whole thing with putting the set together was he wanted the elements to sing as loud as the performers, if not louder. And that's what we went for for the costumes as well, is they all just need to scream um, exuberance and fabulousness. So yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, and then when it comes to staging, part of that is making sure you have enough room for skates. And I imagine most of the cast has not been on roller skates since like going to a skate party in grade school. What were some of the challenges of that? Yeah, we have a wide range of um, skating proficiency in the cast. One of our cast members, uh, Rachel, uh, her parents actually met at a roller disco. So she was born with skates on. Like this, were, it's like a fish to water when she puts skates on. And we have her in the finale whipping all over that stage. We also got D. Eric Woolweber, who's a very, very good skater. Um, Caitlin Feely, who is playing the Olivia Newton-John role, um, didn't have much skating skill going into this. She had skated, but it's different, you know, circling around a roller rink versus actually doing tricks. But the thing is they're all insanely hard workers. Um, Stephanie Stasek, who is our incredible choreographer, made sure that everyone is looking their best regardless of their skill level once they put on skates. When it came to designing the set, we wanted to make sure that it was safe, that we had the most playing space on a flat surface. Uh, we partnered with Roll Train, who is a local um, organization that does roller skating classes about um, Black roller skating culture. Um, in the 1980s, when roller skating became this big Hollywoodized thing, it all stemmed from Venice Beach, California, of a group of people of color who started dancing on the beach in roller skates, and they really defined what this was. The problem happened with movies like Xanadu is they took that image of Venice Beach and they whitewashed the whole thing and sort of discredited this black culture roller skating that had really invented this, this beautiful art form. So they were able to give our actors classes, uh, not only in how to roller skate, how to be safe, how to look amazing, the spirit they need to put into it, but also just to pay homage to the people who really invented it. So you've been a longtime actor and member of Milwaukee's theater scene in southeastern Wisconsin, but how does being a director challenge you in a different way creatively that you find the most satisfying? I think the best directors I have ever worked with are the ones who really give me the freedom to take chances and to take risks and to feel comfortable in a piece. Because, you know, all of art, all of theater is all about the human experience. So if you are, as a human, up on that stage, you really need to tap into your own experiences and your own emotions in order to empathize with a character. So something that I find satisfying about being a director is really giving the freedom to those artists so they can fully embody and, and empathize with these characters that they play. And just having the privilege to facilitate a room where artists can feel that free is the, is the biggest and most rewarding part for me. And if I can make it a fun experience in the process, all the better. <laughs>
Well, and in addition to that, it's kind of a full circle skylight moment for you, yeah? Yes, yes. I've said, like, it's a group of artists that were raised in this building. Um, you know, the, the sort of a, a phrase that I came up with, and it's so, so witty, but I would say, I was born at Skylight, I was raised at Skylight, I got married at Skylight, and now I'm about to have a baby, and the baby's name is Xanadu. Um, <laughs> Skylight in itself is a structure that was built with a foundation of artists following their passions. Um, the muses, the nine muses are painted on the ceiling of the Cabot, and their faces in the painting are not just stock faces of pretty women, they're actual faces of the artists who inspired the building of the Cabot Theater. So every, every design element is meant to pay homage to those artists who built the building. Um, my approach to it is to pay homage to those artists who, who really paved the way for me. And every single mentor that I have had in my directing journey and also my acting journey has a tie to the skylight. Um, and they have been so supportive of me in this process that I just feel like it's, a, it's I, have, I have to pay it forward to them, you know? I feel like I can't walk into a rehearsal room without all of them next to me. Um, it's just a, it's a really beautiful full circle experience for me. Well, in addition to you and your journey and the cast being connected, um, that adds a, an additional sense of ownership to this production. Uh, but it also helps you lean in a bit to not just having fun, but taking a risk. Because a show like Xanadu, from what I recall in Skylight's billing roster, isn't too typical for their programming. So was that intimidating or does that make it all the more exciting to try something new? For me, it's all the more exciting because um, it's one of the few times they've ever done a one-act play. So it's 80 minutes, no intermission, and it's just nonstop fun the whole way through. It's also a cast of nine people, which is a very small cast of all powerhouse performers. But about this full circle moment and like being excited about something, Stephanie Stasek is the choreographer on this production. And her and I worked together in 2014 in Hair, a production of Hair which kickstarted the careers of a lot of Milwaukee artists. It just became uh, this beautiful experience for us. And since then, the directing and choreographing skills are all skills that we have cultivated outside of performing together over the past decade. So it's cool to see us come together now as adults, really strutting our stuff with these new skills that neither one of us have really seen each other show off. So it's kind of cool to be next to my friend Stephanie and be like, holy crap, you're really good at this. So Xanadu, if people were aware of it from the film or, you know, have no idea what it is, have just seen the posters and the headlines, what are your words of reason or encouragement as to why people should come and see it at the skylight? It is, on the surface level, it is fun, fun, fun. It is perfect for a girl's night. It is perfect for a date night. If you just want to come by yourself and just get some joy to put in your pocket to share to somebody else. Um, it's a cold January and February and it's the hottest seat in town. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's just, it's a rollicking good time. And the fact that you're going to walk away feeling inspired to chase after your own dreams. I just feel like you can't lose. Well, Doug, I hope your neon lights will shine. Thanks for joining me today. Quote the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a joy. Doug Clemens is the director of Xanadu, and you can see the musical at the Skylight Music Theater now through February 11th. 
That's Leg Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Leg Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Leg Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll help you plan for severe weather and cold. Plus, we'll speak with the local filmmakers behind the silent, supernatural epic, Hundreds of Beavers. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.